If you would uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue our study through Acts. We're going to pick up our morning reading here in um, verse 14. It's a slight... Refresh on last the, the beginning of Peter's sermon. But uh, this past week in review, we what we looked at what took place on um, Pentecost. Right, we had the Holy Spirit shown to be poured out upon the disciples that were waiting for that promise of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus instructed them to. They were gathered there in an upper room in Jerusalem. During this time of Pentecost, a celebration of the Jews for the harvest, a time of thanksgiving. And uh, they were in that room and at the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, they began to speak in tongues, speak in languages, excuse me, that were not their own. Different dialects that were uh, of the people, the surrounding nations from all over the world that had come to gather, either Jews or proselytes that had come to gather in that place for the, fest, uh, for the Feast of Pentecost. And all those Jews that were there, they, they used this term, Luke uses this term, devout Jews. These were Jews that were devout in their observances of, of the laws that would make sure that they would make the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. They uh, desired to honor God through their observances of these feasts and festivals. But it was these same devout Jews that were drawn to the place where the disciples were gathered, either by the wind, the sound of the wind that was um, described as happening, or the speaking of these languages, Probably the languages, because when they got there, they were curious. They're like, these people, they, they're Galileans. How are they speaking in my Roman dialect or my Egyptian dialect? They were, the whole situation just really caught their attention. And it says that some were curious and some thought that they were drunk, even though it was 9 o'clock in the morning. And what we looked at last week was um, Peter with the 11 apostles, stood and began to teach what was happening to these onlookers. They began to pull from the scriptures. Scriptures, no doubt, they had heard Jesus instruct them with uh, and pointing specifically to uh, the prophet Joel. And that what they were seeing was a fulfillment of the scripture. That God had been faithful to his people in fulfilling the promise of the Holy Spirit. You got to have in your mind that the people that uh, Peter is talking to are fellow Jews. They are Jews who were raised in all of the traditions of Moses and following the law, taught these things. Jews that had been dispersed about throughout the known world, but were still observing Religiously and culturally, at least in that concept, uh, Judaism. Even though they were growing up and, and being a part of other cultures in the world, they were followers of Jehovah. But Peter quotes 
their own scripture to explain this event that God had been faithful to his people in fulfilling the promise of the Holy Spirit. And where we ended was there in verse 21, where Peter says from Joel, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's where we ended. But that's not where Peter ended when he went on to continue teaching. He is going to, and as what we're going to look at today, he is going to point out that that name of the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, who they had just crucified. The man who had been ministering among them for the past three and a half years, the man who had performed miracles and signs and wonders, the one that was betrayed by Judas and hung upon the cross, is the one that Joel is speaking about here. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. And as the church hears, as I'm sorry, as the Jews heard Peter teaching, we're going to see their response, and then we're going to see what followed as the church of Christ begins to form. Or rather, Christ begins to form his church. That's how I should have worded it. Let's read in our um, Bibles here. Chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. He's calling upon them to listen. He's calling for their attention. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter continues on in his explanation of what is happening here by proving who the name of the Lord is. And he starts off by calling their attention. He says, I quote, he quoted the scripture of Joel, and then he goes back in and he's going to call their attention again. Men of Israel, these people that had formed their whole identity was wrapped up in whose people they were, whose God, they, the God that they served. Men of Israel. The devout Jews, 
faithful to God's word. He says, hear these words. As he goes on to explain, he's calling them to pay attention to what he is about to say. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He's calling his attention or the attention of the listeners to Jesus of Nazareth. As Pastor Greg already shared, Jesus is the, he is the focus of our attention. And what Peter needed to do was focus the attention of Israel upon their Messiah. And he has to explain these things to him. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says it following the last verse on purpose. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus of Nazareth. He's going to connect that for his Jewish audience that the Lord that Joel spoke about was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus, of, Jesus was a common name at the time, and that's why they, would, they had to kind of specify who he was by the location that he came from. It wasn't, it, it was like Jesse, it was a form of Jesse. It was a, fame, a name that would, was fairly common. And so they're speaking of the specific Jesus, this one that came out of obscurity, out of Nazareth. Remember what was said about him, that what good could come out of Nazareth, you know? But it is he who is the Lord. He who is pouring out the Holy Spirit. And he's going to explain how Jesus is this Messiah by calling to mind the miracles. He's going to call to mind Jesus' death and he's going to call to mind Jesus' resurrection. All things that happened in their midst at that time. And first he he, he brings about Jesus' miracles, these signs and wonders. Peter says that God had attested or confirmed or approved Jesus by the miracles that he did. In John chapter 3, verse 2, remember Nicodemus going to Jesus by night? This religious leader that had heard about Jesus and had, had met up with him under the, the uh, darkness of night so that he wouldn't be seen. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him in John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there was recognized, even by the religious leaders of the day, that what Jesus was doing was not something that just anybody could do, but it showed that God was with him. And that God did these miracles through Jesus. He was not only God's confirmed one, but he was God's. He was, but God was working through Jesus in this world. And Peter says, you guys saw these things. You yourselves know what Jesus did in, in your midst. You got to remember, too, that some people present would present at this speech very well could have been the ones that had traveled with Jesus and had seen him do uh, feedings of 5,000s and 4,000s and, and, and healing lame people and casting out demons. Jesus' ministry lasted for three and a half years prior. Or it, it, and it was just about seven weeks past Jesus' crucifixion. 
at this point. So the people who had seen what Jesus had done very well could have been right in that place or had known somebody who was affected by what Jesus did among them. But we see that Jesus' death was ordained by God. As we see in verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter lays out something that's very foundational to understand. That Jesus' death and resurrection was the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was by God's purpose and design, something he already had planned out. This determined purpose of God describes God's sovereignty, his supreme power and his authority over all things. And that he had determined and purposed that it would be through Jesus, his death and resurrection, as Jesus or as Peter will go on to say, that he was going to work out his plan of salvation for his people. Jesus would often speak of his death and resurrection. Jesus would openly teach his disciples that this was going to happen. That he would be delivered to be crucified. Even the prophets, if we looked at, they had time to look at it, but Isaiah 53 spoke of the suffering servant. The crucifying of the Messiah. But Jesus' death and resurrection was also by the foreknowledge of God. He knew how it would play out. We see this foreknowledge of God expressed in the very scripture Peter is going to cite as he goes forward. The, the prophets speaking before it would ever happen of how it would happen. If we even look at the next chapter in Acts 3.18... It's explained, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. It was foretold by the mouth of God through, the, uh, through God by the mouth of the prophets that Jesus would be crucified. And we see the apostles appeal to God's purpose and foreknowledge in their prayers. And I thought that this was interesting because... It applies to us. Look at Acts 4.27. has it on here. It says, For truly against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So the church understood this. And it was, this is in their prayers. They're talking to, to God about his determined purpose to be done. And then they, this instructs their prayer on how, how they're petitioning the Lord. Now, Lord, look on their threats. The same people that crucified your son, look on their threats and grant your servants with all boldness that we might speak your word. God knows it all before it happens. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was not a surprise. It says that you have taken, is what Peter says, the Jews' rejection and plot to kill Jesus. It wasn't a surprise to God. He knew it all. And it describes the, the lawless hands that it, it put to death. God knew that the Romans would carry out the crucifixion. 
These people that didn't serve God in his law. But I found such great comfort that there's great comfort to be had in knowing that all these things are under the Lord's foreknowledge and sovereignty. That even the most difficult of circumstances, the most horrific of situations, God is greater than them. They're not unknowable to him. He knows them all. And that the horrible thing that you might be going through or the horrible feeling that you have, it's not the end with God. But it's a situation that he is able to bring us through. As we saw him bring to life his son through this crucifixion. Whatever horrible thing it is that you're going through the day, God is working through it in your life. And that thing is not the end. With him, he will bring you through. And look what God did. In verse 24, it says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Jesus, it says, God raised up. Jerusalem, this is where it was all going down. It was at the hands of the Jews and the Romans that Jesus was crucified and put to death. But God raised him up. Even though they were the ones that killed Jesus, God raised him up. And we see that evil cannot conquer the plans of God. So if you are God's child, if you know him today, whatever it is that you're going through, he can bring you through it, and he will. God is written of raising Jesus from the dead here, but the resurrection in the scriptures is attributed to the full Godhead. God is seen here in our passage today and in many others raising Christ from the dead. But it's important to see that, that this, was not, this was a full work of the Godhead. We see Jesus teaching that he has the power to raise from the dead himself in John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life. It's, I'm adding that in there. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. So Jesus, as powerful as the father is able to raise him again. He's part of the... He rose again from the dead himself. But Paul also taught that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So we see that the Holy Spirit... Raised Jesus from the dead. So as we look at the fullness of Scripture, we see the, fu the fullness of the triune God acting in unity in the resurrection of Christ. They all were part of the salvation process. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was planned from the beginning and determined by the purpose of God. But God raised up Jesus, having loosed the pains of death, because he couldn't be held by it. I like what the NASB says here. It says, Puts, putting an end to the agony of death. Wow. 
loosed here in our translation describes the destroying or the abolishing of. And then pains literally describes like birth pangs. Like a child in the womb, when ready to deliver, the mother will begin to experience these birth pangs. And those are signs that the baby is coming. So you better get to the hospital as quick as you can. (laughs) There's no stopping that child now. And so we see that it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus. And Peter goes on to show in the scriptures how King David prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah. Let's look at verses uh, 25 through 28. It says, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before me, before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made me known, you have made known to me the ways of life. And you will make me full of joy in your presence. Peter begins to quote Psalm 16. Concerning the Messiah that he would be raised from the dead. And seated at the right hand of God. He's going to show us the Messiah. The Holy One raised. The Messiah as David's descendant. And the Messiah resurrected. The Messiah ascended, and the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, ascended. As we look over this scripture and how Peter begins to explain it. But we see first the Messiah, the Holy One, raised. Holy One would not be left in Hades to see corruption, is what David cites in Psalm 16. Peter is saying that this Holy One that David is talking about is Jesus. The term Holy One describes His righteousness and His holiness. And that this Holy One would not be left in Hades. What does Hades mean? What does it describe? Well, Hades, uh, it's the realm of the dead or the grave. In the Old Testament, it's the word Sheol. It's used here as a place where the body would reside in the unseen realm and ultimately uh, decomposition was set in, which David describes as corruption. But it's also used in the Psalms to describe the grave as seen as the place of the wicked. This is where the wicked reside. And then on the other hand, it's the place where the righteous, it's not the place where the righteous were made for. They weren't made for the grave or for Sheol. It was not their proper abode, and therefore they shouldn't remain in it. And Peter, in quoting of Psalm 16.10, says that the Holy One would not be left there, nor see corruption. So it was the understanding of David as he wrote these things, that the Holy One, this righteous and Holy One, would not see corruption in the grave, but would be raised again. And David found comfort in this. Look at that first part. He says, Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad and my 
Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. He was rejoicing because I saw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. David was comforted by the Lord's presence and work in his life to know that the Messiah would come through his life. God is said to be at the right hand of the person whom he helps. As the enemy is to the right hand of him who seeks to he seeks to overcome. And the accuser to the right hand of the accused. By the right hand, the whole man is claimed, whether in action or in suffering. That's how the word right or that little phrase right hand is used throughout Scripture. But we see that the Lord is at David recognizes the Lord as his right hand. And Peter is using this scripture, this comforted, this comfort of David to show that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. That the Lord would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And David goes on here in verse 29. I want you to read with me. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried and in his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him. That of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor his, did his flesh see corruption. This, God, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see and hear. And so... Peter explains his use of the scripture and his understanding of what it meant. And he calls their attention again once more, men and brethren. These were fellow Jews that he was speaking to, devout Jews, earnest to follow the Jehovah and to serve him. He says, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch David. Not out of disrespect, not out of thing, but... A reality that David was both dead and buried, and that his tomb was there to that day. So if David was the one who was speaking of this Holy One, he couldn't have been speaking about himself, or he would have been raised from the dead. So he's speaking of another, another that would come through his line. In, in verse 30, Peter calls him a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ on his throne. David was speaking words of prophecy based on God's word to him. David could not have been speaking about himself because he was dead and buried. But David had to have been speaking about one of his descendants. The Messiah was promised to come through the lineage of David according to the flesh. 
In 2 Samuel 7.16, the prophet Nathan tells David the word of which God had given him, that your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your, sh- your throne shall be established forever. David knew that it was going to be his descendant that went to the throne. And then David himself writes in Psalm 132.11, The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So David knew that one of his descendants would be the heir to his throne. And then even Luke himself, the author of Acts, points out at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus had come through the line of David. And how following Jesus back through all the fathers would go through back to David. So Jesus is David's descendant, the Messiah. In verse 31, he foresees this, speak, speaking, or spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so we see this Messiah that was spoken of, resurrected, that the Messiah would be raised up. And that the Messiah would not be left in Hades to see corruption. In an ultimate confirmation of of Jesus as the Messiah, God has raised him from the dead. Peter and all the other 11 apostles were the witnesses of this. This was their job now, to, to go out and to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And it really is the central focus of our confession of Christ as well. As we share with people that we do not serve a God that is dead. We serve a living God who is enthroned and who will return again. David was not talking about himself, but he was talking about Jesus. Jesus had been raised from the dead by God. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, we have, of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So we see the Messiah exalted. And Jesus in his ascension was exalted to the right hand of God. David is not seen as the one who was ascended into heaven, but Jesus was. The disciples could attest to what they had seen. It was their eyewitness account of seeing his ascension. The scriptures are what tells us that he is exalted to the right hand. We looked uh, in the past couple of weeks, even David spoke of the son of man uh, ascending into heaven and, and seating beside the ancient of days. It was a, a vision that Daniel, the prophet Daniel had in the Old Testament of Jesus' ascension. But the the scripture says that he was exalted to the right hand. And the right hand, as we looked at it, also speaks of having been given equal honor. A person of high rank who puts someone on his right hand gives him equal honor with himself and recognizes him as of equal dignity. So Jesus is exalted to that right hand of God, given equal dignity with the Father, pointing to him. As the Lord's Messiah. And we see the Messiah here as the one who sent the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, when he ascended into heaven and and, uh, sat down at the right hand, received, it tells us, the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and that he had poured it out. If you look at Luke 24, verse 49, it says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Those were Jesus' words. He proclaimed to the disciples that he was going to send the promise of the Messiah, that he would be the sender. And in Jesus, John quotes Jesus saying in chapter 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Jesus is the one who ascended and poured out the Spirit on his disciples. That's what the crowd heard. That's what they saw when they, when they were in Jerusalem for those feasts and, and, and were drawn to what was happening. The wind, the fire, the, the little tongues of fire above their heads, and the speaking of other languages was the moving and the pouring out of the Spirit, the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. In <clears throat> verse 34, Peter goes on to say that David did not ascend into the heavens, But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David didn't ascend into heaven, but he talks of another he saw. His Lord, his Messiah, his King. It says in verse 36, therefore, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter, wrapping up his preaching, at least this portion that Luke records for us, makes the case to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah they've been awaiting. They can know that Jesus is the Messiah for certain. Based on Jesus' fulfillment of scriptures, the testimony of the apostles, What they saw at that moment, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it was all signs that Jesus was the Messiah. And that their faith in Him would not be blind, but based on facts of what had happened, just like it is for us. We don't follow Jesus blindly. Our faith is based in the truth of His Word. And the testimony of those who have gone before us. And the fact that we have experienced the Holy Spirit poured out in our lives. Lives changed. And Peter makes his, that nail in the coffin statement. That God has made the crucified Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is the one. The Lord, back from back in verse 21, at the end of Joel's statement, whom you call upon to be saved. He is the Messiah, the promised Holy One who sits on the throne of David forever. Jesus is the Lord and King over all things. I found it interesting that later on in Acts, Paul will use the same scriptural reasoning Uh, to preach to some Jews that were gathered in a synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia on the Sabbath day. 
And I have the scriptures on the screen here, but let's look at Acts chapter 13 here. It says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. They being all the, the Jews and the Romans who had crucified Jesus, betrayed him, all of the prophecies concerning the division of his clothes and, and Jesus' uh, even last statements fulfilling scriptures that spoke of his crucifixion. It says they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. See, Paul wasn't one of those witnesses. He was, uh, one, well, he was, but he wasn't one of those original from Galilee that were with Jesus. And so he speaks of them, the, those Jews that would follow Jesus. Paul came later on and still saw the resurrected Christ. But he's talking about the witnesses of those who were there present when Jesus rose from the dead. And we declare glad tidings that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Look how he's repeating. They're using these scriptures. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, my fellow Jews, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. To proclaim the good news is to proclaim what God has done in and through Jesus in that resurrection, that's it. Jesus has conquered the grave. Because he is alive, we have assurance that our sin can be forgiven. We have assurance that there is life everlasting. We have assurance that God has not left us, but he's continued to work through our lives from the, this moment forward. Now let's look at the response of the crowd to Peter's message. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. The response of the crowd, they were cut to the heart. They had deep conviction over what had happened. This is also a sign that the Holy Spirit was working in their lives. John 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. 
And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me. See, the, the Holy Spirit had to even come to do a work in the lives of the Jews that did not receive him as the Messiah. And the, what that did was it turned their hearts to ask, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter sets a clear way on how to respond. He says, repent. Repentance, yeah, this means to change your mind, to change your way of thinking. And that change of thinking leads to a change of actions. A change of course, of direction. You were once against Christ. Now as you receive him, you're following him. You were against him. Now receive him as your Messiah. And he says to them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In the Jewish context, they were actually very familiar with ritual washing since they had to wash a certain way to be able to worship, to go into temple, uh, to be clean for worship. They understood this idea of being cleansed to enter into relationship or to worship. And John the Baptist, he also uh, practiced a baptism, which was a call to repentance as well. And what we know here is in this word baptize, it's a transliteration, meaning they're just transferring the word over into English uh, for the word immersed. And so they were to be immersed into Jesus's name for the forgiveness of their sins. It would involve a real baptism, as we'll see. But the idea is that they were identifying themselves with Jesus. They were making a public display of a commitment and a sign of conversion. That's what the Jews would have thought of when they were baptizing as well. That if somebody was to become a proselyte, a proselyte of the Jewish faith, they would go through a baptism of commitment. So Peter instructs those who respond to the message of Christ to be baptized as a public sign of conversion, the reception of Jesus as their Messiah and their means of forgiveness for their sins. Their conversion required faith in the name of Jesus as it does ours. And he says, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to them. So repent. Be baptized and receive. Receive of the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. This, Peter says, was specifically for the Jews that was promised to them and their family. But as he goes on to say, and any that our Lord God will call. The Lord our God will call. And this alludes that the the congregation of those who would follow Jesus was much greater than just the Jewish nation, but it would be opened up to the Gentiles as well. What happened among these new Jewish converts, these new followers of Jesus Messiah? Well, Luke records for us how the church grew and what it looked like. In our remaining passage here. Let's look at verse 40. 
It says, And with many other words he, Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day were about, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then came upon every soul, and then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as any anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the new Jesus community, the new fellowship of Jesus followers. This is what it looked like after the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. We see Peter said much more than what is recorded. One quote that Luke throws in there is to be saved from this perverse generation. And salvation was what was what was the message that Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who is the Lord who we call upon for salvation. And he's saying that those who are not receiving Jesus, who have not called upon his name. They're crooked, they're broken. And it's a generation. We can look around us and see the brokenness of the world that has rejected Christ. But his message goes out, and we are the ones that are to carry that message. But we see those who receive the word, they welcome the message and did what Peter said. It says they were baptized, 3,000 of them, added to the church that day. This had to be a pretty sizable crowd for even a percentage to equal 3,000 of them to receive the message. And, and it is possible, some people like to debate how they could baptize 3,000 people in a day, but there actually are many washing pools, remember? This wasn't not a custom that wasn't uh, of the Jewish faith to be washed and to be cleansed. And they had pools throughout Jerusalem that where this would totally be doable. And then we see the church's life together and what that looked like. The things that they persisted in doing, what the new converts couldn't get enough of. One was the apostles' doctrine. They sought to understand what the scriptures were saying. They were listening to the teaching of the apostles as they recalled what Jesus had taught them, as they expounded upon the Old Testament scriptures. And they fellowshiped together. They partnered together. They shared in the faith by doing life together. They would break bread. And this could have been descriptive of either gathering for that specific board, uh, uh, Lord's Supper, the communion. They would come together for that. Or it could have been describing their love feast when they would, they would gather together and have these, these meals, eating together, where everyone, if somebody had need, they could come and, and eat. And those that had enough would bring what they had to, to meet the needs of others. And it was during that time that they would recognize what the Lord had instituted, the cup and the bread. And it says that they would continue in times of prayer. 
Prayers, when they gather together, prayer and seeking the Lord's direction. Prayer for boldness, as we read earlier. Prayers for threats spoken against them. They were a, a people of prayer. And I might plug that we have a prayer meeting that happens before service. I was so thankful I had to join them today. Got done with worship practice and was able to go on there. Such a wonderful time to spend. It's what we as God's church are called to do, is to be praying. In verse 43, it says, And fear came upon every soul, mighty, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Fear was evident. There was a sense of awe at what God was doing in their midst. Wonders and signs were done by the apostles. I found it real interesting as we, we had to break this passage up uh, over the past couple of weeks. And I'm even kind of going quickly through it. There's so much more that can be dug into. But if we notice back in Joel's uh, prophecy, it talks about these wonders in heaven and signs in the earth below of what God was going to be doing during that time of the tribulation, but also foreshadowed what Jesus did, where Jesus was spoken of. They attested to the signs and the miracles that Jesus had done. And then we see that the same signs and wonders were being done through the apostles themselves, signifying that Jesus had continued to do his work through his established church. These were he, the things that God does, and God was continuing to work in this world through his people. But all who believed were together. There was nowhere else they wanted to be, nowhere else they could feel more connected to and close to than those who had also received Jesus as their Savior. There are people here that are closer to me than my own family. And I hope you experience that too as you're a part of God's church. But they had, they believed and they gathered together. They had all things in common. Now, this was something that was not by force or direction even of the apostles. But it showed that they were so affected by the spirit living within them. That they began to hold so loosely to their possessions and their property. Being able to sell possessions to care for each other's needs. This was the way that the church took care of themselves. As needs arose, they would... They would sell something and to be able to care for somebody. And this was a summary of the outcome of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit did in the lives of, his, of the church. And so they continued to do this. They continued to da uh, daily with one accord in verse 46 in the temple, breaking bread from house to house and ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It was the growth, it was the Lord adding to the church. It was his work, him working through his church that God was adding to, to their number. Their life together was a witness to the reality of what God had done in sending Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, so that forgiveness of sins could be granted to those who call upon his name and receive his spirit. Their life was a witness to that message. God was working among his people in a new and mighty way. The people of God were now his temple, the place where his spirit dwelled. 
And as they lived in such a radical way, the message of Jesus went out. And this is the first time I thought it was cool, too, is that this is the first time that Luke uses the term church in Acts. It's the word ecclesia, called out ones. It wasn't like a specific church, churchy word, if you want to say that. It, it described an assembly, but he did use it in a distinguished way that this term was now given to the church that followed Jesus, the gathering, that the, the assembly of called out ones that followed Jesus. And they were called out because they were now separate from the gathering of Jews, which would be used, use the term synagogue, or, or what we get our English word synagogue from. And so there was a distinguishing between the Jews that received Jesus as Messiah and those that did not. And that's where we get this term, ecclesia. Uh, or at least the, how Luke is using this, this term. It denotes the New Testament community of the redeemed in its twofold aspect. First, all were called by and to Christ in the fellowship of his salvation, the church, worldwide of all times, and only secondarily to an individual church. And I thought that was very interesting. So the key distinctive of the church is that we are in the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are the people of the Spirit of God. The Jews heard this message and were brought face to face with God and, his sovereign, and what his sovereign will have planned. Jesus is the Messiah and you rejected him. You can keep, go, uh, keep on keeping these laws and doing all these religious things. But you rejected Jesus, and he is the only way to be saved. This was the message that had to be preached that day. Jesus is the Holy One, the Messiah of God, who was crucified and buried. But God raised him from the dead. And all who call upon his name will be saved. And you can know this for certain. And there is nothing like meditating on this gospel message. I feel so privileged to be able to study and to be able to to think through God's word and having this time to intently invest in, in just chewing on what his word says. I feel like I've been reading the gospel over and over and over and over and over. And I feel like I'm telling you guys over and over and over again every single week. It, it feels repetitive, but I think that's by design. I think that that's important that we visit this message over and over and over again. Because it transformed the way we think. Like Romans says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By meditating on what God has done and the implications of it, it transforms the way we think about life and the things that we go through. It transforms our thinking about the people that we engage with good and bad. It transforms us in the things that we engage with, the things that we do. And seeing all that God has done to save us, we now can trust Him through even the most difficult of situations. We can't see what's going on. We have no foreknowledge, but He does. We can trust Him that He will see us through. Seeing also that salvation is for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
That means that there is hope for the most sinful, the most broken, the most hurting among us. Seeing that the power of the Spirit is at work shows us a glimpse that the best is yet to come. Right? The best, this is just the beginning. We will see Jesus enthroned, ruling in righteousness, where sin, pain, sorrow, all of it is done away with. This is just a down payment for what he is planning to do, has planned to do, has already worked it all out. We have a great message to share as God's church and his people. Let's pray. Father, we consumed a lot of your word this morning. A message that is so important that, Lord, it, it demands us to sit and to think through these things. Lord, that we've, whether we've fully received what you've done, Lord, and applied it to our lives, or Lord, maybe there's still so much more that you desire for us to see in the simple message of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us, to open our hearts to what you desire to do through the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would just have a, a greater depth, Lord, and a response to what you have done, Lord, in our lives. I pray, Lord, for those that have not received you, that continue to hear you beckon to them of all that you've done to forgive their sin, Lord, your offer of hope and restoration. I pray that you would continue, Lord, to draw them. Lord, that they would surrender and open, Lord, up their lives to, to receive you. Lord, that you would fill our mouths with the message of hope that because you live, we will live. Because you live, sin has been done away with. It can be forgiven. Death has been conquered and defeated. So Lord, we ask that we continue to work in our midst, Lord, that that you would bless all who are here this week as they go out. Lord, in whatever sphere that they occupy and, and have influence of, or whether it be the home or the job place or the, or the classroom or, or whatever it might be, Lord. Maybe going shopping at the market. You would use them for your glory this week that we would see you adding to your church, not just, not just Calvary Chapel, but to your church, or to see lives changed and transformed by you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.